Good morning. It's great to see you here today. Thank you for joining us. Whether you've uh, joined us for the past years or this is your first time, we're glad you're here. It's a, a privilege that we have to be able to uh, have God's Word in our hands. We get to open it up. We get to read it and study it together. And we do so without uh, fear of reprisal from government or uh, bad guys or anything like that. And in fact, we have it in various translations. Now, you can have it in the original if you want. You can have it in multiple translations at once. Yeah, we, we are a blessed people, and we are blessed to be able to come together today. I know for some of you, uh, work schedules prohibit sometimes, and, and you're not able to be here on a Sunday morning, and uh, we are glad that you are here today. Open your Bible, please, to Romans chapter 5. We've been going through Romans for some time now, the majority of the year, really, and uh, it's been a uh, rich journey for me. I hope it has been for you. I know that my own thinking and my own understanding has uh, deepened and grown, and my own appreciation for the gospel has increased as a result of this uh, tour through Romans. And today, as we come to verses 3 through 5 of chapter 5, we begin to touch on some pretty practical aspects, consequences of the gospel, consequences of justification by faith. And so uh, turn with me, if you would, to chapter 5. I'm going to read the whole paragraph, so starting in verse 1 and down through verse 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have your word. Thank you that we have opportunity to be here together. We thank you that in Christ we have opportunity to come to you together. Father, we worship you this morning. We recognize, we acknowledge and declare before you and one another that you alone are God and there is none like you. And we give you honor. We worship you and bow down to you. And we praise you for what you have done to redeem us in Christ. Father, I pray this morning as we open your word and we discuss a topic that can be very heavy, the topic of suffering. And as we discuss it from Paul's perspective, I pray that you would bless us. I pray that you would help us to engage with what is written here. And Father, even as we discuss suffering, uh, of course, our attention is drawn to 
maybe our own suffering at the present or in the past, maybe fears of suffering in the future. Our minds are drawn to the suffering of those who are dear to us. And so we don't take this subject lightly, but we want to understand. And not only understand, but be changed in our thinking, in our in our beliefs, in a sense. So I pray that you would speak to us today from your word. I pray that you'd help us. And that there would be very great benefit in our lives and in our congregation, in our families, because of what we hear from your word this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we looked at the first couple of verses in chapter 5 and we began to, to uh, discuss some of the very profound benefits that come to us as a result of justification by faith. Paul spent a couple of chapters arguing for justification by faith and how it's biblical and how it draws naturally from the Old Testament and explaining to us what it is and what it means. And then he gets to chapter 5 and in those first couple of verses he he hits very clearly on some of the practical benefits that are ours by justification uh, by faith in Christ, that since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through Him, we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And so last week, we got to focus on those blessings, those benefits, and they're profound. And really, they change our view of the world, and they change our view of the gospel deepens our understanding of what exactly it is that we have when we are justified by faith. What royal privileges we have. Peace with God instead of enmity. Access to Him when we don't deserve it. And joy. Joy at His glorification, knowing that we, in fact, will share in that same thing. And so... As we move on in today's passage, you can see that I've kind of divided a paragraph up here in two, and I discussed verses one and two last week, and, and we'll finish three through five today and, and thus finish the paragraph. But he moves on to a little bit different topic or a different aspect of it, or he develops his thought a little bit more fully. And so the challenge for us today as we discuss this topic is to have our hearts so fixed upon the sovereign God's good purposes that we would be able to rejoice even in our sufferings. And so that's the challenge. That's that's, uh, what uh, Paul is going to be arguing for. And so we want to see, first of all, that there is, of course, Christian hope in suffering. Look what he says at the beginning of verse 3. He says, not only that, not only do we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, but not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, rejoice in our sufferings. We we probably uh, wouldn't have been surprised had Paul said that had he discussed rejoicing in God at this point, rejoicing in God. And in fact, he does that at the very bottom of the next paragraph when he says in verse eleven. More than that, we also rejoice in God. So it, it's natural for us. It's natural for the Christian to think about rejoicing in God. That's uh, that's maybe one of the defining characteristics of being a Christian, is that we 
rejoice in God and that uh, rejoicing in him is pretty well the top of our list. We, we uh, love to sing songs to him. Why do we do that? Not just because they make us feel good, but because we are rejoicing in what he has done for us. And so we rejoice in God. And of course, the very famous passage in Jeremiah chapter 9 teaches us on this very subject. From Jeremiah 9 verses 23 and 24, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. We are to boast in, we are to rejoice in God. And of course, Paul would say the same thing in Second Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 1. When he says simply, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. By the way, I keep using, transitioning back and forth between boasting and rejoicing. It's the same Greek word. And so the idea here is that we're we're rejoicing in that thing. We're boasting in that thing. This is where our excitement comes from. This is... This is where our joy comes from. And so probably we would not have been surprised had he talked about rejoicing in God in verse 3. Not only that, but we also rejoice in God. We probably wouldn't have been surprised by that. Nor would we have been surprised had he talked about rejoicing in glory. As he said in, in uh, verse 2 there in the end, and he says, we rejoice um, uh, that... Uh, Excuse me, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, the end of verse 2 there. We talked about that last week, about rejoicing in God's glory and the fact that we believers are in Christ and now when He is lifted up, that means we are lifted up. And when He is glorified, that means glorification for us as well. And so we rejoice in Him being glorified. He's, He's no longer opposed to us. We are no longer opposed to Him and it's no longer a detrimental thing for Him to be raised up and declared to be the Lord. It's a good thing for us because we get raised up in that. We get glorified in that. And so we wouldn't have been surprised had he talked about rejoicing in the glory of God. That's not what he did, though. He talks about not rejoicing in God. He talks not about rejoicing in glory right here. He talks about rejoicing in suffering. There's some irony there. There's it's unexpected. It catches your attention. Unless you're reading really fast and you blow right by it, and then it's not until a couple of verses later and you thought, whoa, 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 what what did he say? He said, rejoice in suffering. And this is something that in Paul's mind is not not just uh, a concept. He's not uh, just making things up. If you uh, keep your thumb there in Romans chapter 5 and go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul gives an example from his own life about suffering and about rejoicing in suffering. And to bring us up to speed, what happened was Paul received this vision, glorious vision of heaven, of heavenly things. And it was, it was so wonderful and it was such a glorious vision that he wasn't able to share it. He, he couldn't talk about it. But in order that he wouldn't be puffed up by having had this vision, he received a thorn in the flesh. And there's speculation about what that is. And for our topic today, it doesn't really matter. The the purpose is it was suffering. It was causing him problems in his life. And he, he begged God three different times, take this thing away. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul, who knew how to suffer, understood hardship, understood the sovereignty of God, 
he, he understood his relationship with Christ. And it was such an intense suffering that what does he do? On three different occasions, he begs God to take it away. And so what's the response? Look at verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore, Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so here's testimony from his own life about suffering and about how God brought him to the point where he could understand to rejoice in those sufferings. And the reason he's able to do that is because he understands who God is and he understands that, that God orchestrated this suffering on purpose in Paul's life for a purpose in Paul's life. He had a such a view of God, such a high view of, of God's sovereignty, understanding God being in control of all things, that, that uh, he really, uh, nothing slips through his fingers. He had such a high view of God that he could take comfort in the midst of his suffering and even rejoice in that suffering. Now, I've never met a Christian who has denied God's sovereignty. It's part and parcel with Christianity that we understand that God is in control of all things. So I've never met a Christian who said that God wasn't sovereign. But I've met lots of Christians who define sovereignty of God in very different ways. One view of sovereignty says that God allowed this thing into my life and he will bring some good out of it. Another view says that he brought this thing into my life so that he could accomplish something good in my life through it. The one view has God very skillfully picking up the pieces from your suffering to make something good out of it in your life. And the other view has God designing that situation, even that suffering, for your ultimate good. In this view, far from God merely salvaging a, a good plan B, Paul describes God lovingly and wisely intending you to go through hardship, and that's his plan A for you. It's for your good. It's for a purpose. It's to conform you to the image of Christ. So we could discuss numerous verses on this topic and talk about God's sovereignty and in what detail is God sovereign and in what ways and things like that. But for our topic today, there's one verse in particular I want to call your attention to, and that's Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29. Philippians 1, 29, we read this. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. A couple things I want to notice from this verse. First of all is that word granted. It's the verbal form, the action form of gift. It's the same word we get, uh, we get the word grace from. It has been granted to you. It's a gift. It's graciously given by God. This is something that He has gifted to you. He has granted it to you. We're talking about a gift from God. And He, he mentions two of them. 
He says, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. He says, the first gift from God that he lists here in Philippians 1.29 is faith, belief in him. But the second one is equally as powerful. What else has he gifted you? What other, what other gift has he graciously given you? To suffer. To suffer for his sake. It's a gift graciously granted, given by God. Back in Romans chapter 5, there's another evidence that that's exactly what Paul has in mind here in verse 3. Look at verse 3. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. Every time the New Testament talks about rejoicing in something or someone, using this construction every single time, the thing that is being rejoiced in is the cause or the object of the rejoicing. So, for example, we could talk about rejoicing in God or boasting in God. Remember I said that's the same word. Rejoicing in God or rejoicing in the Lord. Right? It's because of the Lord that we rejoice. It's because of God that we rejoice. Or perhaps uh, earlier in Romans, we talked about the Jews who boast in the law. They rejoice in the law. The law causes them to rejoice. It's, it's the cause of their rejoicing. Or men could boast in works. Or like Paul back in 2 Corinthians, boasting in his weaknesses. That his weaknesses cause him to rejoice. The thing rejoiced in is the cause of the rejoicing or the boasting. And so he says here in verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. He's not saying we rejoice despite our sufferings. I have almost always read that verse to mean that. We rejoice even though, despite the fact that, we suffer. But that's not what he means. He doesn't mean that we simply rejoice even in the midst of suffering. So while suffering is going on, in the midst of that suffering, we are rejoicing. That's not what he's saying either. I've read it that way very often also. And that's certainly true, that we rejoice despite what's going on. That's part of growing and maturing in Christianity, is that we are able to do that more and more, that we can rejoice always. And so we indeed do rejoice in the midst of our suffering, but that's not what he's talking about here. He says we rejoice in our sufferings. They cause us to rejoice. They drive us to rejoice. We rejoice as a result of them, because of them. And I realize that's hard to hear. That's hard to say. But that's what he's talking about. God, who loves you, who has all power, is all wise, he is committed to doing what is best for you. Above all, he's committed to conforming you to the image of Christ. And in his perfect, loving wisdom, he designs trials and even suffering for you, for your situation for your life that will help purify you and draw you into greater dependency upon Him. He designed that for you. And so, 
Since he is a good and loving God who loves us and is working for our good, that means that we can rejoice even in that suffering. We can rejoice in suffering because God brought us that suffering on purpose for a greater good than we can see. And so what's the application for us? I think it's relatively clear. We need to learn that we can trust God with our suffering and even rejoice in it. Rejoice in that suffering. He has designed even suffering for us on purpose and for a purpose. And so, Christian, don't shrink from suffering. Don't hide from suffering. It is God's gracious gift to you. And so trust him in it and even rejoice in it. Now, you're probably convinced that there is Christian hope in suffering, but the, the how is probably still a question in your mind. And that brings us to our second, our second point here, what I've called the chain of hope. So we continue reading in verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. This is a chain. This is a, what I've called the chain of hope. And first of all, he talks about suffering and perseverance or endurance. And suffering in the life of the Christian causes us to learn to trust God when it really matters. When the chips are down and when it's hard, we begin to trust him even in the midst of those situations. And suffering causes us to do that. And God takes us through that suffering situation with our faith intact. We still believe in him, even through that hard situation, even through that suffering. And so the next time suffering comes around, and it will, we can look back and we can remember, he took me through it last time. It was hard, but he took me through it last time. And so it it encourages us, it increases our faith, it, it causes perseverance in us that we realize we can continue despite hardship. We can continue in the midst of suffering because he's taken taken us through it before. And so suffering produces perseverance. And then he continues and says perseverance produces proven character. As we persevere over and over again, we begin to to display that, that we will continue with the Lord, even in the midst of hard times. And you can observe this in other people. You can see people who've suffered and you've watched them and they've come through it with their faith intact, walking with Christ. You can see their character. And as this happens over and over, we put that on display more and more. We, we learn to count on God, even through suffering, even through difficulty. And while we're suffering, we grow to value our conformity to Christ more than we value our comfort. We're willing to give up our comfort. We're willing to sacrifice our worldly pleasures For the greater good of knowing Christ better, being conformed to his image. And we gradually come to learn that what the world would offer us in exchange for Christ is a cheap imitation. And we'd rather have the genuine article. And so that process continues and our character grows and our character increases. and, And I've called it proven character. That's what results from this. In other words, what's happening here is 
suffering results in our own sanctification, practically being made more like Christ in our walk. And God used suffering to do that. So suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and proven character produces hope. Proven character points beyond itself to hope. How? How does it do that? Well, throughout the chain or the process of suffering, we become all the more convinced of the truth that our justification by faith, our peace with God, our access to the grace of God's presence, we become more and more convinced that that is true. We become more and more convinced of our right standing before God. We become more and more hopeful, more and more convinced that our hope is legitimate, that it's rooted, that it's an anchor for the soul. That it's real. And so we hope all the more. And so proven character produces hope in us. And there's application for us in this point too. When you're faced with suffering, Christian, don't, don't head for the exit. Don't do the natural thing and try and bail. God brings suffering into the life of the Christian for a purpose, to sanctify the Christian. So rather than doing everything in your power to get out of it, why not rather submit to that suffering? Submit to it. You're really submitting to God and what He's doing in your life. And so submit. Submit to Him that this is God's will for your life right now. That suffering that, that, that we don't like, that we really hate, came to us from the good hand of God. Who is working for our good. Who actually works all things for our good. For those of us who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And so I can find peace and I can find comfort even in that. And so why not submit to that suffering that comes to you from the hand of God? And it will produce a a powerful and a profound hope in God that will uphold you no matter the trial. I want to conclude. The final point here discusses the cause and the effect of hope. The cause and the effect. First of all, the the effect of hope. It doesn't disappoint. Hope doesn't disappoint. Verse 5, And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Whoever hopes in God will not be disappointed. That's the consistent testimony of Scripture. Psalm 25, 3, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. And Paul loved to quote this one from Isaiah 28, 17. He quotes it from the Septuagint. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. God doesn't disappoint and this, this hope that comes from suffering is not a wishful thinking. It's not, it's not just Christians burying their head in the sand and la, 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 things are great, things are great, and, and pretending. We're not faking it till we make it. This is reality. It's not wishful thinking. It's grounded in the truth of God's Word. And it's tested in the fires of your own hard-fought bat- battles through suffering. Through trial, as God has shown himself again and again to be faithful, as he has brought you through those difficulties and that suffering, it's a settled and sure hope of the truth of God's promises to us. And one of those those promises from God to us is the one he mentions there in verse 5. Hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. 
The love of God. That's our memory verse for the month. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What love He has for us. I have no problem loving people who, who love me, who treat me well. No problem at all. I'm really, really good at that. I'm less good at loving those people who don't love me, who mistreat me, or perhaps I think they mistreat me. I struggle with that. And God is so loving and so gracious that He shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, what did He do? Christ died for us. When we were at enmity with Him, He gave the ultimate gift. He shows His love ultimately, which is what John says in 1 John chapter 4. He says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He loves us so much, He gave His Son to stand in the way and bear the wrath of God on our behalf. And so, God's love is a promise and it's kind of out there, but the the promise isn't left out there in verse 5 because God's love has been poured into our hearts. Poured into our hearts. We have that testimony within us. God testifies to us and it's not just a little bit. It's not just a drop here and there. It's a... the, the verb here is the kind of verb that I would use if, if we were to give our three-year-old milk in any container but a sippy cup. You wouldn't have a drop here or there. You would have the kitchen covered in milk. It would be poured out. It would be dumped out. It would be spread abroad. It would be scattered. And that's the idea. That's the word here that, that he uses about God's love for us. It's not just a promise that's out there somewhere and you just have to hold on to it despite circumstances and, and despite the fact that you, you don't know if it's really for you. He says, no, he has poured out. He has dumped out. He has spilled out and scattered out his love into our hearts so that we have the clear testimony of Scripture about his love for us and we have his testimony within us. Of his love for me. He testifies to me. And his spirit does the same. Bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He pours out his love into our hearts. And the way he does that. Is by the last of our profound benefits of being justified by faith, and that is God's Spirit within us. God's Spirit within us. That's how He communicates His love for us personally, within our hearts, poured out, dumped, drenched into our hearts, is by His Holy Spirit. Now think about that for a second. Because you know the book of Romans, and you've traveled with us as we've gone through this. Imagine imagine that you have a very significant conflict with somebody. This is an imaginary one, okay? You've got some conflict. It's, it is significant. It, is, it keeps you awake at night. You want to cross the street from that person. You'd rather not be on the same street. You'd rather not see that person. I'm talking conflict. Well, being the good Christian that you are, you go to that person and you apologize or you do whatever needs to be done in order to make that relationship right as best you can, Right? Now, if that's a severe conflict, if that's, a, if that's something that has kept you up at night, how will you know if you've actually fully reconciled with that person? Well, I think it's possibly 
when you want to be with them again. Because you can go and apologize, and that person could apologize to you, and you could perhaps make up and whatever, but you'd really, you know, rather sit over there away from them. Or you'd rather, you know, not be where they are. You'd rather they didn't see you when you're walking through Walmart. You'd rather not sit right beside them, right? There's still, even though you've apologized and you've made up and all that stuff, there's still some kind of a distance in the relationship that's going to take time. Well, think about Romans chapter 1 and 2. Chapter 3, what kind of break in in the relationship was there between us and the Father? From the time of Adam and on, the the break, the the breach, the, the, the chasm between the two has been enormous. Such that we could be called his enemies. That we could talk about the enmity of God. That we could, that, that there's a distance, there's an enormous distance. And how much, how thoroughly has God healed that breach? He gives his Holy Spirit to you. To dwell within you. God himself Far from just wanting to cross the street when he sees you coming from doing this thing and taking a different aisle in Walmart. Very far from that. He takes up residence within you. Never to lose that relationship again. That's how thoroughly healed that relationship is. And if you think about it, that's even a greater healing That's even a greater relationship with greater intimacy than Adam and Eve walking in the garden who walked with God. We walk with God in us. He has so thoroughly healed that relationship. He has done everything required so that we stand before God having peace with God. We have access to God. We hope in His glory. We, we trust Him so thoroughly that we're even able to give thanks because of sufferings, because we know that suffering came to us from God Himself, who loves us and has healed the breach so thoroughly that He took up residence right here. Never able to cross the street from me. Never able to go down a different aisle at Walmart than me. Took up residence here permanently. Talk about God shedding His love abroad in our hearts by His Holy Spirit who's been given to us. His commitment to you. His love for you is made plain by the presence of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. God's very presence in us. Testifying to us of the truth of God's love for us. Now this is some of it's heavy, I know. Talking about suffering is always, is always heavy, it's always tricky. But there are truths that Paul wants us to understand that will make sense of suffering in a way it has never made sense before. So that we can give God thanks for that suffering. Not despite that suffering, not only in the midst of that suffering, but for it. Praising Him for it. Because He has... Blessed us in it. Paul has described a circle today. He started off with hope. He talked about this hope that we have in God. 
We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we, we rejoice not, not just in hope, but in our sufferings. Why? Because suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And what does character produce? Hope. God looked at us. He observed us. He saw the level of our hope, the level of our trust in Him. And He wanted to improve that level. And so He did so by bringing suffering into your life. Thereby proving, improving, increasing, strengthening, and growing your very hope in God. He brings suffering for our own sanctification. He uses suffering to do that thing, to accomplish that good in us. And so don't run from your suffering. Don't fear your suffering, past, present, or future. Don't fear it. Don't try to get away from it. Rather, lift your eyes to God, who is the sovereign and good God, who loves you enough to have placed His Holy Spirit within you, and He is at work to draw you closer to Himself. And that is a good thing for you. And so Paul can say we rejoice in our sufferings. And so my challenge at the beginning of our message today was to understand the topic of suffering in light of who God really is in such a way that we would not become morbid and, and, uh, and gun-shy like I'm going to suffer again and so I, you get, we flinch from it and everything else. But in fact, that we would trust God and realize, hey, I'm going to suffer. God brought that and He's going to sanctify me through it. He's going to make me more like Christ through that suffering. And so I can rejoice and I can praise God even for that suffering. Let's pray. Father, this, this topic can be heavy because I, we, I, don't, I don't like to talk about suffering. I don't like to, to suffer. I have a tendency to want to run away from it. I have a tendency to uh, want to uh, do something to make it go away or make the pain less or something. But Father, if, if what the Bible says about your character and nature is true, and it is, you are working all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. You testify within me by your Spirit that that is me. Help me to lift my eyes to you. Help us to lift our eyes to you that we would give you thanks even for suffering. Because it didn't slip through your guard and you're not doing your best to clean it up and, and try and bring something possibly good out of it if you designed that for my sanctification. You designed that that I would know you better. You designed that to increase my hope in you. Father, I pray that you'd work in each of us. And I pray that as we go about the remainder of our day, as we go about our week, and as, as times of suffering come to us, and whether they're minor or they're major, I pray that our eyes would be fixed on you, that we would have a joy that is unshakable, knowing that you are at work. And we can, we can submit even in this suffering because we are submitting to you.
And there is great joy in being rightly related to you. There is joy in being submitted to you. So, Father, I pray that you'd work in us. And I pray that our view of you would be that high, that we would be comforted, even, even in our sufferings. Father, we thank you and we praise you and we rejoice that we get to be called your children. We rejoice that we get to be justified by faith, that we have peace with you, we have access to you, and we have an unshakable hope in you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. God bless you all. If you'd like to pray with someone, go ahead and come on up and pray with them. Otherwise, you are dismissed.